Okay, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Exodus, and uh, for those of you who've been part of this church for a little while, we've been uh, working through Exodus, although not quite so recently and not into the future for a little bit, but we're going to go slightly back in time to Exodus chapter 7 today. So if you want to find that in your Bible, and what we're going to do is, um, if you've been here in the more recent past, you'll know we've been working through a few weeks looking at the subject of the resurrection, which we were building up to Easter Sunday last week, and we were looking at some of the benefits for us, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus, some of the benefits of the resurrection. And we're going to touch on, on, a, on another one today, which kind of ties in a little bit about what we've been singing about already. We were singing, Len was leading us just now in a song where we were singing about strength to face the day. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, is what it is to be steadfast um, in, there you go, steadfast in a secular age. Because perhaps the main, um, or one of the main chapters in the New Testament about the resurrection is not 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually 1 Corinthians 15 that this verse is from. But it's the whole of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection, what it means for us as believers. And it concludes with this verse that says, Therefore, so considering everything that we know is true about the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this is kind of a, for believers in Jesus, this is a bit of a, a call to action. This is God speaking to us as he's sending us out into the world and saying one of the things that we need to do is to know how to, how to be steadfast, how to be immovable. In 1 Peter, Peter writes to the churches that he's speaking to and, and instructs them to stand firm, to be steadfast. And that's one of the things that the New Testament instructs us as believers to do. Um, but if we're just to take those words alone in isolation and say, well, I'm going to be steadfast, I'm going to be immovable, I'm just going to, I'm just going to not move. I'm just going to stand firm in my own strength, my own might and ability. Particularly in the world that we live in today, we'll find that will, that will only get us so far. Because the Bible understands the world that we've been sent into and some of the challenges of what it is to be a believer in Jesus. And this, there's always been challenges, but particularly today there are unique challenges, particularly living in a city like Amsterdam, there are challenges that are going to come at us as believers. And we need to know how to be steadfast through those things. So to help us to do that, we're going to jump back into the Exodus Story. So let me read the first 13 verses of Exodus 7. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Say, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You should speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh 
will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you should say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, that we can uh, gather here this morning. And as Joe reminded us at the beginning, we come and to celebrate and we come to meet with the King of all kings, the King of all might and power and glory, all authority. And we want to come and submit our lives to you again afresh today. But also we want to come and receive this resurrection power that you've promised to your people. We want to fill us and equip us and enable us to stand firm in this world you sent us into. So we pray, Holy Spirit, be at work amongst us this morning as we look at your word together. Amen. Amen. In the story of Exodus so far up until this point in chapter 7, the Exodus story starts in chapter 1 where you find the people of Israel who've been, ever since Joseph has led them into uh, Egypt many years before, they've been living there uh, peacefully to begin with. But in chapter 1 it talks about how Pharaoh, who is the evil uh, ruler of Egypt, begins to oppress them because he feels threatened. He's afraid that they're going to rise up against him. So he begins to oppress them. He turns them into his, his slaves. And from amongst the people, God raises up a deliverer, Moses, of the famous story of Moses as a baby being sent down the line in a basket. And he's, uh, he's rescued. He's brought up in Pharaoh's home. Uh, and then he, he goes off on his own Adventure spends many years in the wilderness and then God calls him back and commissions him at the burning bush, commissions him to, to go and to speak to Pharaoh and to be the one who's there to deliver this people out of their slavery. And he's sent to Pharaoh with this ultimatum that we see here in chapter 7 and you see it for the first time in chapter 5 where Pharaoh uh, is confronted by Moses and Aaron, they say, let my people go. Let my people go. And in chapter 5, when that happens, I think it will be on the screen here, when that happens, they go to Pharaoh for the first time and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is this God that you 
speak of. I don't, I don't recognize him. And this question, who is the Lord, is kind of, it's the defining question of these first seven chapters of the book of Exodus. Everything in this story is pivoting around this question, who is the Lord? That's what this book is about up until that point. Who is the Lord? And it's not just the defining question of the book of Exodus, it's actually the defining question of the age in which we live in, of the city that we live in. Who, who is the Lord? As in, who's in charge? Who, who has the ultimate final authority? Who's, who's the boss, if you will? Who, who are we going to worship? Because sometimes, as if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're very welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But if you are here today as a follower of Jesus, sometimes your faith, your Christian faith, won't feel very powerful. In a city like Amsterdam, because it often will appear as though Christianity is in decline. That's what people will tell us. You know, even worshipping here in this building, the original congregation moved out in 1977 or 78, I think it was. It's a great privilege to be able to come back in here and to bring worship back into this beautiful building. But for many years, this place was, was empty and a, a bit of a sign of the decline of Christianity in our city. There are church buildings like this across the city, which for many years have stood empty because Christianity is in decline. Often our faith feels like that we're, we're unable to answer some of the big questions of the world around us. Questions relating to perhaps sexuality, gender, questions of morality and ethics. Sometimes it feels like our faith doesn't have an answer to these things. Sometimes it can feel like we're, or at least we're told that Christianity is lacking in diversity or, or it's, that it's intolerant, that it's weak. Those are some of the accusations that get thrown against you as a believer in Jesus. And sometimes the, the position that we can take is one of, of, I guess it's just almost just of impotence. We kind of just think, well, let's just be quiet. Let's just kind of hide away. Let's just not be careful to not upset anybody. Let's be careful not to disturb anything. You know, as long as we just keep our faith private, as what I believe as a follower of Jesus, if I just keep this to myself, then I won't upset anyone. I won't hurt anyone. As a church, if we just close the doors, we don't let anyone in, we'll just keep it quiet. Perhaps, perhaps no one will notice that we're here. Perhaps we won't upset anybody. And that's often how we can, can live as believers. You even find with Moses himself, because at chapter five, at the start of chapter 5, he confronts Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says to him, who is the Lord? And by the end of chapter 5, Moses turns to the Lord and says, oh Lord, why have you done evil to his people? Why did you ever send me? Sometimes we can feel a bit like that. Oh, why did you ever send me? He feels like the, the, all the power of Pharaoh, all the might of Egypt is standing against him and the people. Because what happens in chapter 5 is that Pharaoh, after Moses goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh again ups the oppression, ups the pain and the torture and the horror poured out against the Israelites. And Moses feels like, well, why did you ever send me? 
Surely it'd be better if we just kept quiet, if we just didn't upset anybody, if we just pretended that we perhaps weren't even really Christians, just keep it to ourselves. And that's really the defining question of your life is, who is the Lord? Who who are you going to submit to? Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to follow? Who's in charge? And I guess if you've been around churches for a while, you'll probably know the answer. You know, Jesus is in charge. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 15. We stand firm in him. We're steadfast. We're immovable. And yet that's, that's hard, isn't it? I'm sure you've had conversations with perhaps people in your workplace or people in your university when they discover that you're a Christian and they want to know, what do you think about this? And what do you believe about that? I've heard that Christians think this. Explain that to me. And that that can feel like a daunting position to be in. Sometimes we feel, I don't know what to say. I don't have any answers. And we're tempted in those moments to, to not stand firm, to kind of back away, to make, make lots of excuses for Jesus, to pretend bits of the Bible aren't in there, to say, oh, don't, let's just not go to that bit. We, we're not very steadfast, we're not very immovable. But what we find in this story, which we've just read from Exodus 7, is I think it, it helps us to see how we can stand firm as believers. It helps us to see the power on which we stand, on which is our strength. Because what happens is that they, Moses and Aaron, they go before Pharaoh and they confront him and they're confronting this, the, all of his might and all of his power. And sometimes it can feel, it can feel overwhelming. You know, if you're on social media, sometimes even just the news stories, the opinions, the things that you're supposed to believe can feel overwhelming. It could feel like all the media, the politicians, all the artists, your lecturers at university, it feels like everybody disagrees with you. Or even if they do agree with you, they're too scared to really say what they, to say what they think. And we live really in a, I guess, uh, in an age which claims to be very tolerant, but is often very intolerant. Because our age is tolerant about things that fit with the world around us. I was reading a book recently about the, uh, the Roman Empire, and it was talking about the very, uh, what would have been the Roman Empire at the time that uh, the first believers were beginning to, to live there. And the writer, wrote this, he said, Roman tolerance, like modern democratic tolerance, had its limits just because it was carried out as a social policy for the sake of maintaining unity. Whatever religion man followed, homage to Caesar was eventually required. What what the writer there is saying is so true of what life is like today. We live in a very tolerant world until you say something that disagrees with what the world is supposed to think. Eventually, eventually, it has to, our belief system is only really allowed in Western culture if it will submit to Western culture. Christianity only has its place if it, if it does what it's supposed to do, if it stays quiet at the right moments. Christianity is fine as, if, as long as it, it cares for the poor and the needy 
But as soon as it starts to say anything, then that's, that's not allowed. That's frowned upon. Christianity can only be tolerated if it submits to the secular power, the secular values. By secular, I mean secular means without God. To be godless. Which is what our city nowadays is built upon. And Christianity can only function if it submits to what the city says, to what the people say. Because in truth, the world around us believes that Jesus is dead. That if there ever was any historical character called Jesus, that he's definitely not alive now. That he was in a coffin 2,000 years ago. There was a painting painted about 500 years ago by Hans Holben called... uh, it was called something like the, the body or the corpse of Christ in the tomb. And he was a humanist, and he painted this picture as a, an illustration of what he saw as the end of Christianity. With the center of the painting, you can see the, the kind of pointy, scaly finger of Christ's hand with the nail mark in his hand there. And, it was, and you can see, I think it's in Zurich or Geneva now, you can see the, the painting still in, in real life. Um, and it, it was supposed to illustrate the fact well, that Jesus is, is dead, that there's no power anymore in Christianity. It's just this kind of scaly, haunted, horrible, dead, decomposing body. That's all that Christianity is to many people. And that's the, really the, 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 the basis of secular humanism, as in a society that believes... Uh, that there's no God, and that therefore means that human, us, is the center of everything. And it's all built around this idea that God is dead. The only thing left is us. So we're the center of, of everything. That's what most people in our city believe. And all that's left is this kind of scaly, pointy finger. And the Egyptians... They, they had their own similar boasts. They would boast in the power. They would talk in their literature about the strong hand of Pharaoh. And that's how Pharaoh, their king, that's how he imposed his power, was through the might of his hand, through the strength of his royal arm. So when we see in the Exodus story here, where God says that I will lay my hand on Egypt, in the next verse when I stretch out my hand against Egypt, what God is doing in this story is, believe it or not, God's actually mocking Pharaoh. He's mocking him. He's saying, you think your hand is strong, but you know nothing compared to the hand of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I I will rule over you. I will stretch out my hand against you, and all your royal Pharaoh authority will fail. That's what God's saying to him. And we need to hear that because often as believers in Jesus, our faith feels very small and essentially the the Jesus we believe in becomes not that much different from Holborn's dead Jesus in the tomb. We strip Jesus away of any of his power, any of his authority, any of his lordship, his kingship. We're scared to present Jesus as that. We can present Jesus as a nice guy. Jesus, meek and mild. 
to present him in his authority and his lordship. We don't like to do that. So we strip him away of any of his power, any of his authority. But yet the reality is, is that God had the upper hand over Pharaoh. God in, in Rome had the upper hand over Caesar. There's no great Pharaoh power ruling over Egypt anymore. Pharaoh is dead. There's no Caesar in Rome anymore. Caesar's dead. As Joe was saying at the beginning, our Dutch king will die and someone else will take on the throne. But even over the grand course of history, all the rulers, all the powers, all the dynasties, all these mighty empires that look indestructible, they all eventually, eventually one day, they all fail. I know that because I'm British. <laughs> I have a, a, an, an atlas that my dad used at school when he was a little boy, where you open it up and a third of the globe is, is colored in pink, right? Because that was the British Empire at the time. Huge expanse of the world. And now you look at a map and there's this tiny little bit left even that at the moment is kind of falling apart. <laughs> All these great empires, they fail. But it says in, in Micah, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries. All your enemies shall be cut off. There's no enemy or adversary that can stand against God. And we need to be reminded of that. We sometimes feel scared, frightened of even just being a Christian, let alone saying what we believe. We have to remember that ultimately, Jesus has all the authority. Jesus is supreme over any secular might, and he's also supreme over any evil. Because it's important to understand that the the battle in front of us is not merely against flesh and blood. And we know that because it says that in Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul who wrote the, that, this letter to the church in Ephesus, he, he, he has to draw our attention to this deliberately because the church in Ephesus make the same mistake that we do today, is that we immediately see the challenges in front of us and we see them as people, as individuals, as flesh and blood. And Paul says, no, 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 that, that's not the issue. Actually, there's something evil pulling the strings behind the scenes. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying is that your university lecturer is a Satan worshiper. I'm not saying that. They wouldn't subscribe to any of this. But you have to understand that behind the scenes, there is evil. There is a demonic power that is fighting against what we believe. It's failing. It's losing. But it's, it's trying to build something. It's trying to stand against the works of God. And it, and it pretends to be something that it's not. It pretends to be just, uh, it uses ordinary people, structures, 
systems of influence that uses those things to undermine what we believe, to attack us. And really, the, the, how it works, how it functions, the main goal of evil is to cause fear and chaos. You find that goes through the story of the Bible, that you find that there are times when chaos comes, when fear comes. It's the work of the enemy standing against us. If you look around in the world today, you'll see plenty of fear and chaos. Even in the, the churches in Sri Lanka last weekend, an enemy standing against the church of God trying to bring fear and chaos. That's what, that's what the enemy does. And we see here that when, when Aaron goes, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and Aaron throws down his staff and it turns into a stick. That can seem like a, a, a kind of a magic trick. You know, I remember when I was a kid, my granddad, I don't know if you've ever known this one, do that thing where they pretend to pluck out their eye and then they put it in their mouth and then put it back in again. And when you're five years old, you're like, wow, he just cleaned his eye with his mouth. That's amazing. I'm going to try that. Obviously, it was a, a silly trick. But it's Moses and Aaron. They're not just trying to do a silly trick to try and impress Pharaoh. There's, there's something deeper going on in this story. Because Pharaoh at the time would, we don't know for sure, because you know, this wasn't caught on TV, but Pharaoh at the time would have been wearing a crown with, uh, on the center of the crown would have been, would have been a serpent. Because in Egyptian culture, the serpent was kind of this, um, this image of, of pure evil, but also of power. So when Pharaoh ascended to the throne, he would have made a declaration which would have sounded something like this. He would have said, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful a leader of spirits. This snake is a symbol of Pharaoh's evil authority and power and how he's going to rule through fear and chaos. That's what the snake represents. So when Moses and Aaron take that snake and they just throw it into the dust at his feet, again, God, God is mocking Pharaoh. He's mocking the evil one and saying, all your power and authority, here it is, writhing around on the floor at your feet. It'd be like going into the, the Oval Office in America and slaughtering a golden eagle. I can't think of a Dutch equivalent. I guess it would be like going and burning a, you know, orange top or something. But it's saying your symbol of your power and authority is there it is. It's just squirming around on the floor. God is mocking Pharaoh, he's mocking the devil. It says in Colossians, that's not Colossians, here we go, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, in exactly the same way that Moses and Aaron throw this snake down to writhe around in the dust at Pharaoh's feet, 
and put it to shame. That's what Jesus has done on the cross. Or that any power or authority that any evil has has been disarmed and put to open shame by Christ's victory. That's what the Bible teaches. It's exactly the same thing has happened. Jesus has declared his lordship, his kingship, his authority over any evil that might try and stand against us. Jesus is supreme over evil. And also over the truth. Because one of the, the main battles in front of us today is that of truth. What, what is true? What's fake news and what's real? What can be trusted and what can't be trusted? Who should we believe? And all the time we're assaulted, we're attacked by all sorts of truth claims. This is true. That's true. This is what's really true. No, no, this is what's true. It can be daunting. It can be confusing. And that's one of the main tools of the enemy. It's what he does. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We have an enemy who, who tries to trick us, to blind us by presenting an alternative truth, something else that's supposed to be better. And what we believe is made to look dated, old, irrelevant, that this book is made to look foolish and out of touch, lacking in any power or authority. And that actually, that happens, weirdly, in this story in Exodus. Pharaoh's magicians, they do the same. Moses and Aaron have thrown down their staff, it's turned into a snake, and then Pharaoh says, oh, well, if anything you can do, I can do better, and brings in his magicians. They throw down their sticks, which also turn into snakes. And uh, Paul comments that on, 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 in 2 Timothy. He says, just as Yanas and Yamres, which is the, how the Jewish refer to these magicians, how they oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted a mind and disqualified regarding the faith. What they were trying to do, what Pharaoh's magicians were trying to do, is, is just a, another conjuring trick. You think this is true, well, how? well look about this instead. Look about this better idea, this new, fancy, brilliant idea. Because the, the great myth of the world we live in is this idea that we're in this enlightened world, that the lights have been switched on now, that for centuries and centuries people lived in religious darkness, and now we know we have an age of reason, where we know those things aren't true, and now the lights are on and we're all free. That's, that's the big, big truth that the world around us declares, that somehow our freedom is found, that there's a deception in saying that the world around us is no longer centered around the truth of who God is, but the world is centered around the truth of who you are, of you, who you want to be, all this potential wrapped up within you. One of the leading figures in humanism a few hundred years ago said, we can become what we will. Archimedes said, give me somewhere to stand and I shall move the earth. 
Anne Frank. You can see the picture of it if you go on the ferry across the NDSM wharf. It's a big picture of Anne Frank, and it says above it, let me be myself. That's, that's the message our city proclaims. Let me be myself. If you can, any truth that you really need, you can find within yourself. And that's the only thing that matters, what you believe about yourself is the, the one great truth. But things that's not, that's an empty truth. It won't set you free. Because you'll search within yourself and you'll just find confusion and contradiction. And if you listen to the world around you, think, well, what shall I believe? I'll listen to all these people, all these voices. You'll find confusion and chaos and contradiction. It won't set you free. Believing that you have all the answers within yourself, believing that somehow any peace that you need, any hope that you need, any joy that you need you can find within yourself doesn't work. It might work for a little bit, but really eventually it will fail. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. The, ba- the great big truth we need to hold on to is who is the Lord? Who is Jesus? Who's really in charge? Who has the authority? So Jesus is supreme over truth. He's also supreme over secular victory because we could break into, I guess, a kind of, kind of triumphal attitude of, well, Jesus has won, so great, we're all winners as well. That sooner or later all the evil around us will just kind of crumble away but yet we all know that that's, being a Christian normally often doesn't feel like that. We don't feel like we're winning. Often the opposite can be true, that we can feel like we're under attack. And that's true, and Jesus warns us of that. He says in John 15, if they persecuted me, and they did persecute Jesus, they will also persecute you. In the world you will have tribulation. Tribulation means trouble, trial, difficulty. It says in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Note how definitive that statement is. It doesn't say some who desire, it says all who desire. It doesn't say you may be persecuted, it says you will be persecuted. All of us, if we really are going to live godly lives, we'll find moments where we're under attack, where we feel persecuted for what we believe. Not just missionaries who go to faraway countries, not just characters in the book of Acts, but us. If, if we're gonna build a church in this city that really does shape and influence and love this city, then there'll be times when we'll be persecuted. <laughs> If, if, if that's what we want to do. We've just got to accept that because Jesus tells us that's how it's going to be. And even in this story, despite this cosmic confrontation, despite this kind of great battle between God and the evil Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't listen, does he? He, he ignores them. He decides his own plan is is better. So still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. Pharaoh's heart 
was hardened. And sometimes it can feel like that God's power is somehow limited, that we're stuck in this kind of tug of war between God and the powers around us. And sometimes God's winning and sometimes God's losing. Sometimes it can feel like that. But we have to understand that that's not true because as it says here, his heart was hardened, he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Because he told them in verses three and four, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So when Pharaoh hardens his heart, that's actually God at work. It talks about that in Romans, it says that God will harden whom he chooses to harden, that that's his prerogative to do that. If you understand that there's, there isn't any power or authority in the world around us that doesn't submit to Jesus' authority. All of it is under his lordship. And it might be that God chooses to harden people's hearts. And why does he do that? Well, it goes on in the story of Exodus to say, uh, in chapter 14, it says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God does it ultimately for his glory. Sometimes he hardens people's heart because eventually one day he's going to show his glory to them. He's going to show them who he really is. He's going to show them the victory that he's really decisively, finally won. Because we've got to understand that being a believer in Jesus, often strength will appear like weakness. We just look at the cross. It looks very weak if you look at it as a story in isolation. Our king, our savior, dying on a cross. Looks very weak, but actually it's this wonderful symbol of Christian strength and hope and victory. Also, that means that often for you, being a Christian, probably most of the time, you won't feel strong. You'll often feel weak, and that's okay. It's not really about whether or not you feel strong. It's about whether or not you know the one who is strong. You know his power at work in your life, even through your weakness. Because we need to understand that we are now in a new era. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he marks out five, six stages, beg your pardon, which he goes through, of stages of Jesus' victory over evil. So number one, Conquest predicted. So right at the very start of the Bible, in Genesis, uh, God says to them that they will, they will crush the head of the snake. It's the very first kind of glimpse of the gospel, you see, right at the start of the Bible. It's saying this snake, this image of evil power, will be crushed. Jesus' victory is predicted. Second one, conquest begun in the ministry, in the life of Jesus Number three, conquest achieved at the cross. Number four, conquest confirmed and announced at the resurrection. And then conquest five, this is where we are now. Conquest extended through the church. 
and then the conquest consummated at the end of times. So right now, we live in this place where it's, it's already been achieved, where it's already been confirmed and announced that Jesus' final victory has taken place, that he is in charge. It says in John 16, a quote from earlier, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a great message of victory and hope we cling on to, that every time when we come back to the resurrection, we know, yes, he has won. He has conquered. He has the victory. So even when I feel weak, even when the church feels weak, even when it feels like all the, everybody in our city is against us and what we believe, all these evil forces are standing against us. Even when we hear our university lecturers saying things, you think, how can you say that? I don't know how to respond to that. Jesus' victory is over all of those things. He is supreme over secular victory, and he is also supreme over secular salvation. Because we've been talking about this big, confrontation between God and Pharaoh and how it relates to our faith in the world around us, but also relates to your own personal story of redemption, your own very individual walk with God. Because the world around us will offer you a way of salvation, a false freedom. Or if you, if you just hold on to what really you can find true within yourself, then you'll be free. Come to Amsterdam. Find your liberty. Find your freedom. Come and discover who you really are. It's this message of salvation. It's really what it is that the world around us says to us. And yet, it's just chaos pretending to be order, pretending to be peace. But there's no peace there. There's no hope there. But we find in verse 12 of, of Exodus, where the magicians cast down this staff and they become serpents, what happens? Aaron's staff swallowed up all of their staffs. Must have been a pretty big snake, I think. But it swallows them all up, gobbles them all up. And the next place you find this word swallowed in the Exodus story is in Exodus chapter 15, where it talks about how the sea swallowed up Pharaoh's armies. Where Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and they have to go across the Red Sea. God famously parts the Red Sea, they walk across, and Pharaoh chases after them in all his chariots, all his great army, hunting them down, and the sea crashes in. It says it swallowed them up. It's the same word in Hebrew. It's the same word as this snake swallowing up the other snakes. The sea swallows up Pharaoh's army. We see that word again comes up in Isaiah. Oh no, that's not Isaiah. There you go. That's that verse from Exodus. Isaiah, here we go. It says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And then if we come full circle right back to 1 Corinthians where we started, 1 Corinthians 15, 
verse 54, just a few verses before where we're told, therefore be steadfast and immovable. The, the therefore is built upon this, because death is swallowed up in victory. It's this same word again. So when Moses and Aaron's staff swallows up all the other staffs, it's this beautiful picture of actually Jesus' ultimate final victory. That all evil power, everything that could stand against us, sin, death, the devil, has all been swallowed up in his victory. That he has this final, supreme, wonderful victory. That his grace has won the day. It says in Galatians, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. It says in Hebrews, it says, therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery what was true of the people of Egypt is wonderfully true of us. That through Jesus' death, any power of the devil has been defeated. Any slavery you feel stuck in has been defeated. The power of sin over your life has been defeated. And Jesus stands in ultimate victory over all those things. He's won this wonderful, decisive, final deliverance for us. That means now that we can stand firm with confidence. It doesn't mean you won't face persecution, you will. It doesn't mean sometimes you'll find yourself in positions where you'll feel under attack. You might feel like you don't have any answers. But our confidence in those moments is not built on how clever we are, the good answers we have, but knowing that you have this victory now in Jesus that he has finally, once for all, defeated any evil power that could set itself against you, that will try and trick you, that will try and deceive you, <laughs> that will try and tell you that somehow that you're not good enough to know this God as your savior, as your friend. That somehow you're not good enough to know his love. Come with you with all these deceptions, but you can stand in his victory. <laughs> final, conclusive deliverance that he's won for you. And now you can know perfect freedom. You can really know what it is to have salvation. It's all in him and his victory for us. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that this morning we get to stand firm in your victory. And that's, as a, a church in this city, that's how we want to stand firm. That's how we want to be steadfast in a, a godless city. We want to love this city. There's so much about this city that is beautiful and wonderful, so much to celebrate. And we want to love this city. But before anything else, we want to love you. And we want to be steadfast and secure and immovable on your resurrection power. So we ask you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, Come and send that resurrection power into our hearts, into our lives, to enable us to stand, we pray. Thank you, it's your grace, it's your power that strengthened us. Help us to walk in the good of who you are and your final decisive victory. Amen.